You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I'll bring, I bring the show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving area with ocean life above and below the surface. So today we are diving into some of the most powerful organisms on the planet, phytoplankton. Yes, phytoplankton, the tiny little microscopic ones that float around and, and photosynthesize. They are extremely powerful. My guest is Dr. Bill Coughlin, and he is a senior research scientist in marine microbial ecology and oceanography at Romberg Tiburon Center for Environmental Studies at San Francisco State University. His research focuses on what factors control phytoplankton growth, their nutrition and distribution in the ocean. So in my, my thoughts, I often are I'm talking about the ocean with my education and outreach work, and I just think it's going to be really interesting to kind of dive into the details of these inc- inc- incredibly interesting creatures, which provide for so much life on our planet, but um, can also turn and be quite harmful. So welcome, Bill. You are live with us in the studio here at KWMR. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Bill's also a teacher um, as part of his work at Romberg Tiburon Center, so I thank you for taking time during your semester to come out here. So how did you get interested in phytoplankton? Well, uh, I was brought up close to the coast uh, in a small town in British Columbia, and so I always saw uh, marine life close hand, right, right, right out our front room uh, window. And... Um, I got involved in the actual phytoplankton when I was an undergraduate at the University of British Columbia. And as a freshman project, I did a um, study on the effect of pulp mill effluent on the ecology of the Strait of Georgia. And the dominant effect of the pulp mill effluent is affecting the phytoplankton. So that's how I first heard about phytoplankton. And then it snowballed, and by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I was doing an honors dissertation on phytoplankton and the effect of ultraviolet radiation. Mm -hmm. And then many degrees later, I've been doing phytoplankton research and associated um, microorganisms that that are associated with phytoplankton for the last 30 years or so. Wow. So you fell in love with these little creatures right away. (laughs) I guess so. and when I was I was doing a little bit, I used the Ocean Almanac. Have you ever seen that book? It's this funny book that has some incredibly tall tales about mm-hmm. the ocean, and they call phytoplankton vegetable plankton. Can you or vegetable? Yeah, vegetable plankton. Can you talk a little bit just about the biology of phytoplankton? Um, sometimes there's confusion of it being a plant or a protist or another area of level of designation. And when, can you just tell us a little bit about the biology of these organisms. Sure. Well, phytoplankton is sort of a general term. And when you said uh, like vegetable plankton, uh, that that has a lot of 
truth to it in that the vast majority of the phytoplankton get all their energy from the sun. So they photosynthesize just like a regular green plant. But also there's many phytoplankton that actually are heterotrophic. That is, they eat other um, plankton, or there's some that can do both, mixotrophic. And so phytoplankton aren't all photosynthetic. In fact, some of the ones you see off the coast here, like Noctilucta, which form massive bioluminescence displays, they're 100% heterotrophic. So they don't have the capability of using the sun's energy. They eat other phytoplankton. But uh, overall, when we think of phytoplankton, uh, the most important ones are the ones that do derive their energy from the sun, they photosynthesize, and they make carbohydrates. And they're essentially the base of the whole food chain in the oceans today. And in the process of being photosynthetic, they're also producing 40 to 60% of the oxygen on our planet. So they're pretty important. That was one of the questions I had. I often hear a statistic of 50 to 75%, and I'm wondering, how do they base that? And so you say 40 to 60? Is that what well, you said? Well, yeah, I, I'm... I haven't done a world um, estimate. This is essentially based on how much oxygen they produce through photosynthesis compared to trees, grasslands, and such. And so I think the figure is is fairly broad, um, but it's around 50%. And maybe in some areas it could be much higher. Um, if you're talking off the desert shores of Africa, uh, essentially all of all the oxygen is being produced by the phytoplankton as, the, as there's very little plant life in the deserts right off the coast of, let's say, Northern California and Oregon, where we have an abundant forest, um, forests that are producing tremendous amounts of oxygen, then the actual percentage in that ecosystem would probably be lower. But to, to round it off, it's probably around 50%. That is still, still such an incredible statistic to me as uh, a land dweller on this planet. We really are indebted to phytoplankton for our survival. Oh, yeah. Without the phytoplankton, we wouldn't have this planet. They produce the oxygen that, got the, that oxygenated our environment. So it's, they're pretty important. <clears throat> they were important historically, and they're important today. So speaking of the geologic record, um, how far back, when do, phyto, when do plankton appear, phytoplankton appear? I think they mentioned the Jurassic period. Um, they've been around an incredibly long period of time. They're evolutionarily very adapted to the oceans. Uh, we have all different types of phytoplankton, some that are adapted to the cold, turbulent waters. Others do much better in the warmer, uh, stable water masses. Um, here off California, we have virtually all of them, uh, well, all the different types of phytoplankton. Some of them are... Um, have the capability of producing toxins, which can be harmful to us. But the vast majority, 99.99% of them, are totally benign, and they're a fundamental component of our ecosystems. Without them, the ecosystem would crash. So the big time for phytoplankton, I know, is the summer, <clears throat> excuse me, with spring upwelling, bringing a lot of nutrients up to help fertilize those waters. Um, how do the plankton populations vary throughout the year? The spring and the summer are big time, pea soup, but how does it go throughout the rest of the year in terms of the populations? Well, there's always phytoplankton out there. Uh, for phytoplankton to form blooms, as it really proliferate, they have to have an abundance of nutrients, and that's where the upwelling comes in, the upwelling of deep waters to the surface. The deep waters are replete with nutrients. They have to have an abundance of light. So that's why you have more of the phytoplankton blooms in the spring and the summer. You have longer daylights. Uh, you have more sunlight, you have less clouds, and you have more stable water columns. So you have more um, potential for the growth of phytoplankton. And um, 
if you have the mixing in the storms, the phytoplankton get mixed so deep that they just don't have enough light per on a per average basis on a day to really um, grow very, very uh, fast. So that's when you say stable water column, that has to do with the mixing. Like in the wintertime when we get these big storms, there's a lot of mixing going mm-hmm. on, right? Yep. So in the spring and the summer, they're a bit more stable, meaning they don't flip around so much. It's yeah, pretty the, good water. The water starts to um, become heterogeneous and it forms layers. And once it forms layers, uh, that allows the phytoplankton to stay up at the surface close to the sun. But at the same time, when those layers develop, that separates them from the abundance of nutrients that are at the depth. So here off the Point Reyes, we have episodic upwelling all up and down the California coast. So the upwelling is not continuous. You'll get the upwelling, you'll bring the deep waters to the surface, and then the upwelling will stop for a while. And that's when the bloom takes off. That's when you get this massive doubling of phytoplankton every day. And so in a matter of days, you have a massive phytoplankton bloom. Yeah, I read that the... uh they reproduce to 2,000 times, up to 2,000 times their winter populations in the spring and summer. Is that about right? Um, probably close to that. Kind of a rough yeah. number. At least they really, they, they, I wouldn't say 2,000, but at least uh, 100-fold, maybe to, maybe mm. close to 1,000-fold okay. in some areas. Good to know. Great. So, so let's talk a little bit about the, the scientific questions you have been working on in regards to plankton, since obviously not only do they support human life with oxygen, but they support the marine food web, the ocean food web, and diverse numbers of species, countless numbers of species. So can you tell us a little bit about the main research questions that you have in regards to phytoplankton? Well, we have three um, projects right now that we're putting most of our energy into. One of them is um, looking at how phytoplankton or how some of the phytoplankton can turn toxic and what are the environmental factors that will allow these phytoplankton to produce a toxin and finding out the role of that toxin. And the, the toxin isn't meant to go out there and kill us, but that's one of the, that can be one of the side effects of the toxin. That's one of our lines of research. Our second line is understanding how environmental factors such as ocean acidification can affect phytoplankton growth and also the nutritional value to the rest of the phytoplankton, rest of the food chain. So the phytoplankton are going to grow. They may actually even grow faster under a more acidic ocean. That's a possibility in some areas. But their, um, a, their source as nutritional value to the next food chain and, the, and further up the food chain likely will change. And then finally, our third um, line of research, we've been looking at phytoplankton as a source of biofuels. And uh, I was working for a number of years in association with a consortium of universities from all around North America and Canada and Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company. And they were one of the oil companies that were sponsoring the research for us to, f- to get a test bed facility to, uh, to uh, understand the potential of phytoplankton, marine phytoplankton, to be a source of biofuels. So those are the three projects we're still working on. Uh, They're all funded by federally um, competitive grants, and uh, we have a small laboratory, a small active laboratory at the Ronberg-Tiburon Center, where myself and my research associates and graduate students are pursuing 
pursuing this research. Fantastic. Thank you. For those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Bill Coughlin, who is a research scientist at the Romberg-Tiberon Center. So the first one you're talking about, Bill, is how plankton can turn toxic, and I'm assuming this is um, when we hear about harmful algal blooms on the coast, mm-hmm. and that's related to plankton blooms uh, that turn toxic. And one of the questions I had around that is, the phytoplankton alone, is it, the toxic, is it a toxic plankton individual on its own, or is it the amount of plankton that might be in the water that together uh, bioaccumulates to become toxin? Well, that's a good question, and part of its terminology. Um, often you see the term red tides, and red tides are used almost um, synonymously with harmful algal blooms, and they aren't really the same thing. A red tide is essentially any phytoplankton bloom that's at a high enough concentration that you can actually see it with the naked eye. And a red tide may not have any harmful consequences. It's just a lot of phytoplankton in one area. Now, a harmful algal bloom, that's not really a scientific term. It's a societal term, and it's any type of phytoplankton that accumulates to a degree that it'll cause a negative effect on our national economy. So it doesn't even necessarily need to produce a toxin, but um, some cells, they're in such high abundance, and they may be close to, say, mariculture, and they'll affect the, uh, the fish being cultured there, even though no toxins involved. Now, right now, we're working with phytoplankton that actually do produce a biotoxin. It's a naturally producing produce toxin. Phytoplankton have always had this capability, some of these species, and we're trying to understand what are the factors that trigger the toxin production, and most importantly, what is the, what is the purpose of the toxin? Because making a toxin requires a lot of energy, so the phytoplankton must have a need for this toxin. And so that's our, our underlying question, is to try to determine what is the toxin for? That is so interesting. So what are your ideas? What are you thinking in terms of, I mean, really, these are tiny little microscopic plants, most plant-like, plant-like yes. animals, plant-like plants. <laughs> and why would they need to produce a toxin? I mean, I'm thinking in, on the land-dwelling side to prevent being eaten by other animals sure, or and mammals. That, and that is one of the roles of some of the toxins that will decrease their uh, predation. So let's say the zooplankton, which are the little microscopic animal plankton, and they're multicellular, they would normally eat the phytoplankton. And if the phytoplankton are producing a toxin, that would probably deter them from eating them. And they also may produce a toxin to outcompete other phytoplankton for limiting resources. And that kind of gets into what our, our feeling of what the toxin's purpose could be. And we think it actually allows them to... Um, acquire nutrients that are in the ocean that are found in very, very small quantities. And the nutrients that generally are found in very small quantities are the micronutrients, things like iron and copper. And so some of the work we've done with Pseudonitia, which is a diatom found right off the coast here of Northern California and is responsible for demolic acid poisoning, and that has had huge impacts on marine mammals here in California, that toxin we've shown can actually help them acquire copper and iron. And the other species we're working with today is Heterosigma akashua, which is a raphidophyte, which is just a little <laughs> flagellated phytoplankton. That means it's a phytoplankton with a tail, and it can swim about the water column and optimize its position in the water column to have lots of light, lots of nutrients. And we feel that this raphidophyte um, 
produces a toxin that allows it to cause the, the fish gills to um, essentially explode. And when the fish gills explode a fish, they release, um, well, of course, the blood, which has lots of iron, and it has nutrients. Wow. It's incredible. I just, phytoplankton really blows my mind because some of these stories, I'm just like, this is amazing because we just don't learn about this stuff unless people like you look into the microscope and really, really dive into it. Very interesting. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about the environmental factors. This is something I heard you talk about this summer that was so fascinating to me in terms of how ocean acidification may impact or may affect the nutrient value that they then provide for the food web. So can you talk a little bit about that and how do they change, how do they change their nutrient value? Well, all phytoplankton produce carbohydrates, proteins, um, produce more than that, carbohydrates, proteins, and a host of things. But the proteins, of course, are very valuable. But they also produce lipids. And lipids are composed of amino acids and, uh, and, fatty, and fatty acids. And depending on their availability, depending on which stage of growth they're in, if they're growing very fast or they're growing very slow, that's going to have an effect on the type of lipids. When they're growing very fast, they're producing things called polar lipids. And these polar lipids, they form membranes and a number of structural material on the fast-growing phytoplankton. They need to have structure. But when they run out of essential nutrients, then all of a sudden they can no longer grow fast, and they hit a, a phase called stationary growth, where they're just barely growing. And in that case, they're no longer making the polar lipids, they're making the neutral lipids. And these neutral lipids have a much lower uh, quantity of the polyunsaturated fatty acids, called PUFAs. And these PUFAs, we can't make them. Animals can't make PUFAs. So fish can't make them, humans can't make them, but they require them. They have to get them from their diet. So if we think that ocean acidification would change the way the phytoplankton grow and change how they can acquire nutrients, it'll have an effect on their nutritional value, essentially how, many, how much of the PUFA they have and what types of the PUFAs. And that's where we think where we have this linkage between ocean acidification and potential degradation of the food chain. So we're calling it the rusty, acidic food chain. Now, science is based on developing hypotheses and then testing it. At this point, some of our European colleagues have shown, yes, there is quite a strong link between ocean acidification and the type of the nutritional value of the phytoplankton. But this is one of the very first studies. And we're expanding on this and working off the California upwelling system to find out right in our system here if we have this, have this problem. We'll do it in the laboratory under test organisms isolated from Northern California, and then we'll actually go to sea in upwelling systems and see if it's really a problem there as well. Now, we hope it's not, but that's what science is all about, testing these hypotheses. Yeah, fascinating. A lot of stuff happening in the laboratories, but I imagine the scale of bringing it to the natural conditions is very difficult mm -hmm. scientifically to test these things. Now, are there specific, just specific species that you're working on to an analyze the nutrient value of these species? We're looking on the species that normally become dominant in these highly productive upwelling systems along the California coast all the way from essentially Washington, Oregon, California, all part of the California current upwelling system. 
So we're going to look, uh, look at the species, isolate them right from the field, the ones that normally do very well here, and see how they're being impacted from the increased ocean acidification which is occurring today. Right. Now, we have, um, for those, we've talked about ocean acidification on this, on this show before, but basically ocean acidification is the changing pH of the ocean from the excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's actually altered the pH of the ocean. And from what I'm learning, it sounds like the California current here with the cold water that we get upwelled, that we actually have advanced conditions than other parts of the ocean right yes, now. Yes, we do. Yeah. No, but we've always had some variation in acidity, right, because of this cold water upwelling system. So are, are you thinking at all about um, the natural evolution of these plankton in terms of dealing with these dynamics as it is? And that, that may be part of it, but when those upwelled waters come to the surface, um, they're, they're, these waters reflect the acidity or the CO2 conditions of when they were first formed at the surface. So they're from 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so ocean um, acidity has increased dramatically since that time. Hey, we have much more CO2 in the atmosphere since that time. And so the waters that are now coming up have more and more of the dissolved CO2 in it, so they're more acidic. Now, when I say acidic, it doesn't mean they're actually corrosive now. They're not low, low pHs like battery acid. It just means that the trend is is going towards the acidity part of the pH scale. And the pH scale is just a scale like a Fahrenheit scale or a centroid scale to measure temperature. The pH scale just measures that, measures that for acidity. So we are seeing a drop in ocean pH from values of 8.2, 8.1, down a little bit lower, um, 7.9, 7.8 in these upwelling zones, and sometimes even lower than that. So they're not particularly corrosive, but they, that's a dramatic increase in the acidity level. Right. So even these small changes can have a big impact to mm. different areas, different levels of the food web. Very interesting, very concerning for everybody involved with uh, anything to do with the ocean. This ocean acidification is kind of changing the, the ocean conservation conserva uh, conversation quite a bit on top of all the other stressors that we face so um, how about excess nutrient loads? When I'm thinking about this big storm, it's been a huge push of water from the land to the, to the bay to the ocean and bringing with it tons and tons of nutrients. Can you talk a little bit about excess nutrients sure. in the water and plankton growth with that? Yeah, you don't want too many nutrients and you don't want too little nutrients. Here off California, we have an abundance of nutrients already off our coastline. So the extra nutrients that have come down with these massive storms probably aren't going to have a huge effect overall in California. But in other parts of the world where the ocean water on the coast is devoid of nutrients, when you have these massive rainfall events, you get nutrients from the land, from agriculture, from sewage outfalls, all sorts of different or non-point and point sources. Um, and you also get different types of nutrients. Off the uh, California coast here, the nutrients that come from the depth to the surface through upwelling are mostly in the form of nitrates and phosphates and silicates. When you have nutrients coming from shore, you're going to get a reduced form. You're going to get things like urea and ammonium. And these are other forms of nitrogen, and all nitrogen isn't really created equal. 
And these forms of nitrogen may allow certain species to do better than others. And so we're trying to uh, determine if the different forms of nitrogen actually will, actually will cause a change in the species composition. And there is some evidence, and the evidence has come right from my lab, that shows that some of these nitrogen forms actually make species more toxic. Now, we can't generalize, and it's very dangerous to generalize on that, but when we find, let's say, urea or ammonium will make a certain type of species more toxic, then we really have to understand it in greater detail. We don't want to raise false alarms, but this is what we've been seeing in laboratory work. So now our or really our challenge is to find out, is this a problem? If it's not a problem, great. But if it is, we have to understand the problem. We have to understand the mechanisms behind it. Well, isn't there typically been some um, human impact, too, from these uh, outfalls when there's large rains and people surfing in the water, getting different infections? Or, that, that's, or is that different? Some of that is hearsay. But when you have these large... Uh, rain events. Then, of course, you have storm runoff and such. And so you do have probably pretty dirty waters on the coast. And so you'll hear surfers talking about earaches and such. Well, if they've had sewage outfalls and they've had all the storm drains going, there's a lot of bacteria and viruses that are not normally found uh, in abundance in the coastal waters. And that's probably the issue. Now, as far as phytoplankton changing as a consequence of that, we really don't have a lot of evidence of that. In other parts of the world, again, where they don't have a lot of nutrients in the water, and then all of a sudden you get a flush of nutrients, you are going to have an impact. But if you have too many nutrients, you start to get a trophication. That's when you have way too many phytoplankton. And when the phytoplankton start to die, when they run out of nutrients eventually, they settle to the bottom of the ocean, and that decomposition, which is done by bacteria, needs oxygen. It's an oxidation process, and they use up the oxygen in the area, and that becomes an anoxic zone or a very low oxygen zone. And we have this on the, off the coast of um, the Mississippi area. Um, in the, that whole Gulf Coast area, because of the excessive amount of nutrients that are coming down from agriculture, these are fertilizers that aren't used by the crops, they fuel a massive phytoplankton bloom. And then eventually that bloom falls down to the bottom of the ocean and is decomposed. And so we have these anoxic zones. And so the other animals that live in that habitat don't have access to that oxygen. Correct. So is this what we call dead zones? Dead zones, exactly. Dead zones. Interesting. So many different fascinating layers of it. I want to actually come back in just a minute here. We're going to take a short break, and I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about your work in terms of how phytoplankton might be a source of fuel. You're talking about biofuels and we'll take the conversation from there. So those of you tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stuck. I'm talking with Bill Coughlin from Romberg Tiburon Center, and we're talking about phytoplankton. Please stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. You're tuned to KWMR, and this show is Ocean Currents. And today we're talking about phytoplankton. I have Dr. Bill Coughlin, who's been studying phytoplankton and many assets of it for aspects of it for many years. And it's just fascinating to really dive into the base of the food web and the very complexities of these organisms and how they respond to changes in the ocean and, and the changes they provide for other food 
levels up the food web. So we're let's talk a little bit about the biofuel you, work you were doing. That was another area that your lab is working on. And I've heard a little bit about algae as biofuels. I just haven't heard a whole bunch about it. But can you tell us a little bit about how you organize this work and what are some of the outcomes of it? Sure. Well, right now we're um, funded by the Department of Energy to do some lab-scale work on finding the suitable phytoplankton candidates and the environmental conditions which allow them to produce uh, the lipids that can be used for biofuel production. And this work all arose. Um, I was recruited to lead an effort in uh, Kahlua, Kona, Kona Kahlua, and to um, help put together a consortium of uh, partners and manage and develop a new facility on the Big Island. And this facility was going to be a pilot project to determine um, the types of technologies that we need to grow phytoplankton at large enough scale so we can actually do this commercially in a commercially viable way. Now, the whole purpose of this project was to try to figure out how to grow phytoplankton, which grow very fast, faster than any other plant, and how to grow them at large scale so they can um, be used as a, f as a source uh, for lipids that will make the biofuels. And um, some of the things we wanted to avoid, we wanted to avoid using fresh water. So that's why we're using marine phytoplankton, not freshwater phytoplankton. We wanted to avoid using agricultural land, which we need for regular food crops. And that's why we were using the uh, lava fields of Hawaii. And we also wanted to avoid using any genetically modified organisms. We felt that nature, with the abundance in species of phytoplankton, there were some species out there that would be very, very lipid-rich, that would be great candidates for biofuels. And we felt that it was ecologically sounder for us to do a survey of the phytoplankton and find those candidate species and grow them to scale. That's essentially what we did in the first few years of operation. And uh, we were there really to set up the operation, get everything working, train the people, and then I came back here to San Francisco to resume my academic position. So that is what we're doing. We're still part of their consortium. We're still assisting in this um, whole effort. And right now we're making a lot of um, headway. One of the things you may have heard maybe in the media is a lot of hype about biofuels and, and biofuels from phytoplankton. And a lot of it really is hype. Um, there were a lot of individuals that were excited about this, and there's good reason to be excited, but they really didn't have the training. They didn't really have the understanding of phytoplankton and how it works. So the one big difference in the Shell organization is that they went and they found what they considered experts in the field and brought them all together, and we were very successful in doing this work. Now, commercially viable, it's, it's a long ways off, but we have to understand the science behind it before we can ever th think of using this new technology to fulfill this need for transportation fuels. That would be a lot of plankton, I'm thinking, for the transportation Tremendous. we need, yeah. right? Um, how do they convert the lipids from the phytoplankton to useful well, energy? Well, first of all, you have to um, extract them. Uh, we would essentially um, centrifuge down the phytoplankton, and then the lipids are extracted, and they're dried, and then, they're, then they go through a few regular processes where you actually form the, the right carbon chains that are necessary for either biodiesel, aviation fluid, or whatever, whatever fuel you're looking for. Interesting. So is this something that's a potential for down the line that we might hear more about? Oh, I think it's definitely a potential. Um, but at this point, 
none of these technologies have been optimized so they're commercially viable. They really, it's quite expensive to get that a liter of oil or that liter of aviation um, fuel. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to require a tremendous amount of effort. And we were very fortunate in that uh, the last few years with some of the incentives from the Department of Energy that some of the techniques and the scientific know-how to understand how phytoplankton produce these lipids and how to optimize them uh, were supported by the uh, administration. So with that sort of support, not just here in the United States, but in Europe, um, in Israel, and a few other countries, that we are making some pretty significant strides. That's great, an international effort there. Is there, um, are there any other countries that are using phytoplankton as biofuel for a smaller scale? There are a number of um, organizations that are using phytoplankton for pharmaceuticals. But as far as a source of biofuel, I don't think there's anyone that's actually producing biofuel on, from, from marine phytoplankton on a large enough quantity to uh, really say that they actually it's a, it's a viable um, commercial enterprise at this point. Would there be interest in farming phytoplankton for aquaculture or uh, yeah, that's what, those are those are some really um, neat ideas, and they have a lot of a value. That you know, rather than feeding your fish farms um, ground up fish that are from an inshore fishery or from Chile or whatever, you actually grow up your phytoplankton. You grow them under con, um, very confined conditions, controlled conditions. You understand the water quality. You know the type of phytoplankton, and then you can pelletize these dried phytoplankton. And then they can be used as a fish feed. And that's one of, the, uh, one of our goals when we were doing this operation was to ensure that all aspects or all components of the phytoplankton are being used. So not just the lipids that will become a fuel, but also the proteins and also the carbohydrates that will form a fish feed. And in a sustainable manner, manner. And that's one of the great things about our operation. I think one of the things I'm most proud about in our operation in Hawaii is that we had zero aquatic waste into the environment. Zero. That's wonderful. I love models like that that are really taking that into account from the very beginning. Hopefully we'll hear more about that in the future. Now, you were just telling me that you were in Korea recently at an international conference with some students and a lot of work and ideas being shared. Can you give us some highlights from that? Well, it was, a, it was a great conference. It was in Shangwon, uh, South Korea. It was at an international conference of harmful algal blooms, and we presented our research. My student presented his research and some of the collaborative research we've done with both NOAA and my colleagues from in Canada and also University of Maine. So the neat thing about or the exciting thing about these conferences is you get to see what's hot, what's, being, what's going on right now, one to two years before it's actually published. And we saw some great research being done in Europe uh, by graduate students on even how dinoflagellates, which is a type of phytoplankton, how they were using um, these mucus nets to capture other phytoplankton. And so you're seeing um, these little phytoplankton that act like fishermen themselves, and they're acting more and more like insects rather than plants. So they're you've got to remember they're unicellular. They don't have a brain. They don't have any of this any of these. Um, organs, they have organelles, but they actually have very, very complex behaviors. And that's really exciting work. 
That's really cool. And that, that's just new science, new, new discoveries. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. very interesting. I think it's really important uh, for scientists to get together like this to share. I was recently at a conference in Monterey, the Ocean Acidification Conference, and the energy amongst the scientific community of sharing and hearing each other's work was amazing. It was really you could really hear this everybody lifting up their their work and collaborating. Now, also, I know a few years back, this was such an interesting project. You were working on. Uh, testing iron fertilization and that when we add iron to the ocean that plankton growth increases and there were some other aspects of that that you were studying. Can you tell us a little bit about this interesting aspect? Sure. Um, In the last decade or so I've been involved in all the major American efforts to understand how adding minute quantities of iron can change let's say an oceanic desert um, into an oasis. And what we knew about these areas, we call them high nitrogen, low chlorophyll regions. So that means they have a lot of macronutrients, things like nitrate, just like the nutrients we're talking about in upwelling zones. But they have very, very low quantities of some essential minerals like iron. And areas include the equatorial Pacific, the south, um, the southern ocean, uh, there's parts of the northeast uh, Pacific. These are all areas that don't have big phytoplankton blooms. And so the idea was, is we wanted to test, was iron limiting the system? And these experiments showed very, very clearly that, yes, indeed, if you add a small amount of iron, you can cause massive phytoplankton bloom. So this, of course, caused a whole deal of excitement and energy uh, and people getting involved in, well, maybe we can increase fisheries or maybe we can use it as a way to draw CO2 down from the atmosphere. That was not really the design of the experiment. The design of the experiment was to understand if iron was limiting the system. Before we can actually go any further uh, to find out if we can use this as a way of enhancing fisheries or maybe enhancing the drawdown of CO2, we have to know and we have to totally understand the effects as we go up the food chain. These experiments only explored the chemistry of the ocean, the phytoplankton, and their immediate predators, the zooplankton. There was no study further up the food chain. So we have no idea how small fish or how planktivorous fish or how the fish that feed on the planktivorous fish, how they're being impacted. So you really can't use this as a policy for enhancing fisheries or CO2 mitigation until you understand the effects on the whole ecosystem. And that's where virtually all the scientists involved in these projects caution the community, let's figure this out first before we use it as a mechanism of change. Interesting. Has there been further studies since then? There's been a number of these studies around the world, not just by American scientists, but by European colleagues, and our our Japanese Japanese colleagues have worked with us on this. But it has um, commercial um, groups have been quite interested, and there has been a lot of misinformation, and There has been some groups right here in the San Francisco Bay Area that have wanted to use this for-profit system of cap-and-trade, a way of using your, getting your carbon credits by enhancing phytoplankton bloom. And they seem to have um, settled down a little because they realize that there's some environmental risk. We have to understand the risks before we even think of doing this. But just recently, uh, this last summer of August, uh, an entrepreneur convinced... um, some the, the native people of the Queen Charlotte Islands, the Haida Nation there, to uh, 
invest in a phytoplankton enhancement scheme by adding iron to increase salmon fisheries. Uh, a very misguided effort. Um, unfortunately, I feel the native people of um, British Columbia were sort of hoodwinked into this idea. It's, uh, I think it's uh, very, very unclear what the results would be. I think the results on actual fish populations um, would not be dramatic. Um, negative or positive, but we don't know. But this cost uh, many millions of dollars from a community that probably cannot afford to spend this on very, very uh, fishy science, you might think. Kind of short-term gains in a very, way, too. Could be very short-term gains. Now, there, there, could be some, there could be some potential for this, but you don't do these things in a black box. You do them openly. You do them with the consent and the involvement of scientists in the field, and you do it very, very transparently. And none of this has happened in this experiment. I can imagine the pressure to the biological community like yourself when you find out these little these little gains and successes and the pressure to go further with them in terms of making them economically useful. Yeah. Well, scientists, we try to figure out how things work. Uh, most of us aren't in it for a commercial gain. We like to, if it can help the economy, if it can help our fisheries, if it can help our coastal economies, that's all great. But scientists are level of expertise, our degree of expertise, is understanding the mechanisms of the ecological process or physiological process. We're not venture capitalists. We're not entrepreneurs, per se. We understand the science side. And um, we'd like to work with these people rather than work against them to ensure that any of these ideas or any of these processes that they do receive funding for, that they do it in an ecologically sustainable manner. And they do it transparently and with our assistance with your scientific knowledge applied as the knowledge and not tweaked. <laughs> well, you know, we're doing this for a reason. You know, this is our bread and butter. We like to see our knowledge utilized for society's gain, but not at the expense of the environment. Yeah, very good point. So I'm curious, from your experience um, as a scientist with phytoplankton and the many, many questions that you've explored regarding it, are you concerned about the future of phytoplankton? Um. Phytoplankton pretty resilient. Our oceans are in trouble. There's a lot of issues that have to be addressed. Uh, our planet's in some pretty serious trouble. Um, I think our number one goal is to ensure that our society knows that things like climate change um, are real. They're not some theory. Um, they are impacting our oceans and our terrestrial systems today, and we have to do something about it. And I think the science that we're doing may help understand the process. It doesn't provide the solutions yet, but we'll understand the magnitude of this problem. And as an oceanographer and a phytoplankton expert, um, I don't think the phytoplankton per se are at risk, but communities could change. Their nutritional value could change. And when you're talking about the base of the whole food chain, it's pretty important that we get it right. It's pretty important that we understand the effects of the effects that climate change may be having on the base of our whole aquatic food chain. So um, we don't have all the answers, but um, this is not a time to stick your head in the sand. It's a time to put more effort and more resources into understanding our resources. Do you feel now that, uh, well, I know it's been a struggle that with funding for scientific research in the past few years, now that we've passed this election and we're now moving forward, do you are you hopeful for more funds to come for further for scientific research into this important 
life-sustaining information? Well, I'm always very hopeful. Um, It would be great to hear that the White House understood what phytoplankton are. Um, I really don't know um, how much impact we've had at the highest level of government. Uh, NOAA, of course, has been working very hard on these issues, but NOAA has received massive funding cuts. Uh, My colleagues in NOAA are really having their hands tied behind their backs and they're not being permitted to do the research they'd like to do. And some of the best research that our federal colleagues are doing, they do in association with their academic colleagues at universities throughout the country. That has been uh, somewhat curtailed by severe, severe restrictions on their traveling and their collaborative efforts. So um, I think NOAA right now has got a funding crutch, uh, crunch, and um, hopefully that will be rectified with the new administration. Um, and when they do receive the funding, they can start working together with their academic colleagues and we can address these problems. Excellent. Any last words you'd like to share today with listeners about your work and science and phytoplankton or ocean in general? Well, I'm really um, quite optimistic that things will get better. Um, I'm very optimistic and pleased to know that our children in school today know what phytoplankton are. When I was a child, I had no idea what a phytoplankton was, a phytoplankton. Now students receive a curriculum that explains the whole marine ecosystem. Um, They understand the importance of keeping the waters clean, the understandable sustainable fisheries, um, a lot of issues that were taken for granted in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s. So I think we have turned the corner. I think that society wants us to look after our resources more carefully. And um, here in California, I think we've taken the lead with excellent schools in both the CSU system and the UC system of studying marine uh, processes. And together, I think we actually will make a difference. Fantastic. I love that you emphasize education at the end. It's really important. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I've learned so much about phytoplankton, and I have a much greater appreciation for them than I did before. I mean, I've always appreciated them, but it's just a fascinating piece of information in terms of their life histories and the way they move and evolve and use nutrients and make nutrients. So thanks for coming today. Very welcome. Um, We'll take a short break, and I'll come back in just a little bit. You've been listening to Ocean Currents, and my guest has been Bill Coughlin from the Romberg-Tiburon Center. Thanks for tuning in. Please stay with us. Well, thanks again for tuning in today. Um, You've been listening to Ocean Currents, and we've been talking about a very fascinating topic of phytoplankton and the many aspects of science that are being explored with this important level of the food web. And I really enjoyed having Bill Coughlin here to to talk about it. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and it's part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. And we have a podcast. You can go to iTunes and search for Ocean Currents or come to cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes as well. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. 
To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean.